Struggle is a way of life for all who inhabit this world, particularly for women of color in a white-dominated world. Asian Pacific Island women, like their colored counterparts, have had to fight to participate as equals with whites in U.S. society. Sometimes, they have had to almost literally move mountains that once seemed immovable to get where they are today. As past and present struggles reveal, Asian Pacific American women in white-dominated U.S. society will continue to take up the challenge of blazing a trail towards equality and social justice. That was an excerpt from the preface to Dragon Lady's Asian American Feminist Breed Fire premier Asian American feminist text. It's fairly old, but as a beginner's guide, it's pretty good. I would especially read it to get the full preface, as it's an amazing essay that goes into the history of the accomplishments and actions of great Asian American Pacific Islander women, from the Hawaiian queen Liliuokalani to the members of the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence. While I could go on, the most important part about the preface is who wrote it. That person being Japanese-American civil rights activist Yuri Kochiyama. You can't talk about important Asian-American activists without coming across Kochiyama's name. She spent decades fighting for the rights of not only Asian-Americans, but Black Americans, including other people of color such as Puerto Ricans, immigrants, and became an advocate for economic justice. She also had a well-known working partnership with Malcolm X during the 1960s. In many ways, she was considered a radical during her time and is considered in some circles fairly controversial, justifiably so in many cases. Yet, it's important to learn about Yuri Kochiyama and her work as it not only puts a human face to an often invisible movement, but Kochiyama is an example of how we can broaden our ideas about liberation and how diverse political thought can be within a group that is too often characterized as a monolith which allows us to confront ideas or people that have not aged well or are actively problematic, if not outright bad in today's times. Yet, they are always important to learn about. Hi, my name is Kim Montana and welcome to Asian American Feminist in Training. Yuri Kochiyama didn't always go by that name. She was born Mary Yuri Nakahara to Seiichi Nakahara and Suyako Sawaguchi in San Pedro, California in 1921. She was a normal Japanese-American girl living a fairly peaceful childhood. That was until she was about 20 years old, when, on December 7, 1941, the Japanese army bombed Pearl Harbor and the U.S. became a part of World War II. On the same day... Three FBI agents arrested Kochiyama's father, Seiichi, who had just been released from the hospital, under the suspicion that he was a spy and a national security threat to the U.S. government. He was kept at a federal penitentiary for weeks, only being released after his health had deteriorated rapidly. He died the day after being released in 1942. The family later found out he had been mistaken for the wrong guy. That same year, the family was sent to a Japanese internment camp in Arkansas until the war ended in 1945. Her father's death and treatment by the FBI significantly shaped her worldview, as it awakened her consciousness to the bigotry and prejudice that existed in the world. A part of me feels like I should have to explain what the Japanese internment camps were, 
But considering most people barely learn about the Tulsa Race Massacre, I feel like I have to. Especially since my personal introduction to the Japanese internment camps was in middle school. Not from my teachers or classes, mind you, but from a fictional book for older girls that I got from a Scholastics book fair. The book was from the Dear America series. It was called The Fences Between Us, The Diary of Piper Davis by Kirby Larson, which was about a white girl whose Japanese friend gets sent to an internment camp. Keep in mind, I went to schools that were better about teaching fucked up parts of U.S. history, like I knew from third or fourth grade on the Civil War was about slavery, which is a considerably impressive on one hand and a really low bar on the other. The Japanese internment camps was a policy enacted in World War II where 120,000 people of Japanese descent, a majority of whom were U.S. citizens, were evicted from their homes and incarcerated in camps until the end of World War II out of fear of them being a national security threat due to Japan being the country that bombed Pearl Harbor. I don't think I have to go into much detail to tell you that at, at best that was kind of extra and at worst, that was one of the most horrific civil rights violations in U.S. history. For Kochiyama, this trampling of her civil rights wasn't all an endless black hole into humanity. During her time in the camp, she met her future husband, Bill Kochiyama, who would be an important partner not just in life, but in her activism work. In the camps is when we see this work sort of coalesce for the first time. During her time at the camp, Kochiyama worked with other Japanese-American women to write hundreds of letters to Nisei GI to keep up their spirits. The Nisei are people born in the U.S. with Japanese immigrant parents. Kochiyama said she did this to fight shoulder to shoulder with every Nisei for the right to the same opportunity as the Caucasian. She also helped form a USO for the Nisei GIs due to discrimination they faced at the mostly white USOs. Even after the war ended, though, Japanese people were still discriminated against amongst the general public, making it hard for Kochiyama to find and maintain a job. As she said, Once I got back to California at the end of October 1945, I started looking for a job right away. But it was really difficult because I was Japanese. I must have tried every single restaurant in San Pedro, but no one would hire me. They, a restaurant on Skid Row, were willing to take chances on hiring a Japanese-American, but I never lasted too long before I was identified as a J-word and cause a ruckus. While World War II and the Japanese internment camps were the start of her political activities, Kochiyama has always stated her true awakening wasn't until the 1950s when she was living in New York with her husband and children. Despite being working class and having many children, the Kochiyamas opened the door to people from different walks of life, held cultural events, and provided services to help people find jobs, housing, healthcare, and schools. Kochiyama and her husband even started the Nisei Sino Jap organization to house Japanese and Chinese GIs visiting the city. At the same time, Kochiyama visited and supported the Hiroshima a maiden's 25 female survivors of the atomic bomb who came to the U.S. for plastic surgery. She wrote, While caring for and raising my children, I became very involved in the immediate needs for better education and housing. 
the times seem urgent and demanding. Our family's lifestyles and priorities change. Social gatherings became political gatherings. Through her guests, Kochiyama got to know many Black and Latina civil rights activists, such as Daisy Bates, the NAACP president of the Little Rock, Arkansas chapter, who worked with the Little Rock Nine. Kochiyama would later credit Bates for sparking her interest in the civil rights movement. Having lived next to and worked with Black Americans throughout her life, especially post-World War II, Kochiyama felt both sympathy and recognition for their fight. As she wrote in her memoir, I will never forget what happened to Pop. I saw what the American government did to him with my very own eyes. As I reflect back on that that traumatic event, I see the parallels between the way African Americans were treated in the segregated South and the way Japanese Americans were evacuated and relocated to remote internment camps across the U.S. In each instance, there were senseless degradation, brutality, and hatred wrought by fear and ignorance caused by racism. So, I remain passionately committed to doing whatever I can and saying whatever I must to eliminate racist assumptions and ideas. Game Changer, though, came in 1963, when the Kochiyamas joined the Harlem Parents Committee to work on community issues. They learned the basics of African-American history and participated in protests to demand better conditions in Harlem, education reform, and equality for Blacks and Latinas. Through this work, she would go on to encounter the one and only Malcolm X. While at the time, she was not considered as radical in her politics as Malcolm X, after attending weekly sessions of the Organization of Afro-American Unity and being invited to attend the Malcolm X Liberation School by Malcolm X himself, her politics rapidly changed to those of radical liberation. From there, Kochiyama worked along with Black liberation activists and became a bridge for Asian and Asian-American activists to work with them. This includes three Japanese journalists who met, met with Malcolm X through Kochiyama, all three being Hibakusha, or atomic bomb survivors. An under-discussed topic when talking about Black liberation activism is the racial solidarity between Black and Asian Americans at the time, Malcolm X and Yuri Kochiyama being the prime example. Malcolm X himself, through his education of Asian history, saw a lot of parallels between Africans and Africa and Asia due to the history of colonization. Malcolm X said at that meeting with the three journalists, you may have scars from the bombing. We were also bombed. The bomb they dropped on us was racism. Malcolm X and Kochiyama remained close working partners and friends for the rest of their lives. As Malcolm X was the biggest influence on Kochiyama as both an activist and a person, they would write to each other often about issues. Kochiyama, inspired by Malcolm, became a Sunni Muslim, and Malcolm X's daughter would often refer to Kochiyama's auntie, their friendship only ending when Malcolm X was assassinated. As Kochiyama recounted, I was in the audience when Malcolm X was assassinated and immediately ran on stage as soon as he fell to the floor. Cradling his head in my hands, I was shocked. 
His death was sudden. It was devastating for Harlem, for other black communities, and for the black liberation movement. However, the movement could not be extinguished. Kochiyama continued her activism with the black liberation movement as a non-black ally, and it's around the late 60s she officially changed her name from Mary to Yuri. She often worked with the black and Puerto Rican revolutionaries, fought to free political prisoners, and worked with anti-imperialist third world liberation groups by bringing attention to their causes. She became even more radical in her politics, whether it was joining activists and taking over the Statue of Liberty to protest the imprisonment of Puerto Rican independence activists, or being for black separatism and Puerto Rican sovereignty. Okay, I know for the past little while I've been talking about Kochiyama's liberation work with other groups to the point where it's easy to question why she's important to Asian Americans in general and especially Asian American women. However, I hope it's clear that even in her work with other groups, Kochiyama still did work with causes and groups that involved Asian American women, such as the atomic bomb survivors. Part Part of the reason she became so close to Malcolm X was because he showed understanding and care for Asian people, countries, and the problems they faced. However, I think in a broader sense, the work she put in for all these other groups that would later be carried over to her work with the Asian American movement illustrates her politics on liberation. Kochiyama was virulently against the Vietnam War, not just because she was anti-war, but because she saw it as racist and imperialist, with the U.S. exerting control over an Asian country. In one of her many newsletters, The North Star, this article on the Vietnam War, which she brings up in her book, was present. Vietnam stands as a beacon in a starkly dismal world. It is a North Star to liberation movements as a gleam of hope to the so-called backwards nations, dominated by foreign powers. It is the personification of the struggle in Africa and Latin America, and also Black America. I bring up that quote because in it, she draws a clear link between countries that are from various regions across the globe, but all suffer the same problem, the Kochiyama. In researching Kochiyama for this episode, it seemed to me that the reason she fought so hard for black liberation is his recognition for how it relates to equality and equity for her as an Asian American woman, dismantling the systems of white supremacy and imperialism that keep all marginalized groups at the bottom of the social hierarchy. It's basically the idea that you cannot have true liberation for oneself if the system that oppresses you still has power over another group. An example of this in Kochiyama's life is when in the 1979, she worked with if concerned Japanese Americans to organize support for Iranians in the U.S. during the hostage crisis. As her and the organization saw many parallels between Iranian citizens' treatment and the treatment of Japanese Americans in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. Heck, what attracted Kochiyama to the Asian American movement was the idea that it seemed to me a sensible thing since all issues of struggle addressed human rights and social justice violations of one sort or another.
This was something she said in her 2004 memoir. This multi-layered view of liberation is something many women of color are aware of due to the fact their experiences with oppression lie at the intersection of, at the very least, two systems, racism and misogyny, a view of liberation that is important to the equality and equity of Asian American women. Not to mention a tenet of Black liberation that many non-Black activists, especially Asian Americans, grabbed onto was the idea of self-determination or determining one's own destiny, an idea that for many people of color and third world activists were as extremely appealing and helped lead to the development of radical politics among many groups, such as Japanese Americans. During this period, Asian Americans had at times an ambiguous his status, where it was basically a coin flip of whether they would be treated more like blacks or whites, which gave access and incentives for people like Kochiyama to work with black liberation and civil rights movement. Suffice to say, I'm incredibly justified for including that part, even if it makes the runtime of this episode ungodly long. By the late 1960s, Kochiyama now had the skills experience, and political consciousness that had been started in the Japanese internment camps and fostered through her work with the Black community to fight for Asian Americans. Kochiyama attributed her increased involvement with the Asian American activists to the Vietnam War, which she saw as a product of racism and colonialism, and the activist Kazu Ijima. Ijima, considered one of the mothers of the Asian American movement, helped Kochiyama get involved with early er organizing activities. The Asian American movement emerged in the late 1960s to the mid-1970s out of a desire for self-determination and a desire for a common cause for Asian immigrants in spite of ethnic differences and homeland politics. Many Asian American organizers came out of various leftist social movements, such as the Civil Rights Movement, Free Speech, Women's Liberation, and especially the Anti-Vietnam War and Third World Movements, all of which influenced the Asian American Movement. Kochiyama worked with Ijima, Min Matsuda, and Mary Ikeda to help start Asian Americans for Action, or AAA, one of the first pan-Asian groups in New York. She supported and advocated for the release of Asian American Steve Yip, Yu Kikimura, David Wong, and Eddie Zeng for what she viewed as wrongful imprisonment for their political actions. She got involved with Asian Americans for Action and worked with concerned Japanese Americans to advocate for reparations for Japanese Americans to offset the economic, psychological, and cultural damages created by the Japanese internment camps. She also fought for construction jobs for Chinese workers in spite of discriminatory practices by construction companies. Kochiyama had fought for workers' rights for people of color all her life as she saw intersections between class and race, which informed her leftist views. As she wrote, racism is something that it seemed like all people of color, if not people of color, it would be poor people, have gone through that this country is not only race conscious, but class conscious. Yet what impressed Kochiyama the most about the Asian American activists was the young people involved. As she wrote, 
One remarkable aspect of this movement was that a sizable percent of our young Asian Americans became involved. From coast to coast, Asian American students and community activists jumped into this domestic fray wholeheartedly. Young Asian Americans respond to the political and social upheavals that rocked the country was like cracking the barriers and break the, breaking previously accepted its stereotypes. Greatly influenced by the civil rights movement and its many student-led protests, demonstrations, and rallies, young Asian Americans suddenly grew up, felt proud, and stood tall. Unafraid to speak out, they began to take action in and organize in their communities. They could detect an identity crisis and realize their lack of knowledge of their own Asian American histories, cultures, and languages. A new Asian American was being honed as the Asian American movement was birthed and new goals, perspectives, values, priorities, and even lifestyles began to change for many. Their eyes and minds began to focus on the world of the oppressed, exploited, and marginalized. For her part, Kochiyama helped foster young people's activism by helping to organize protests on college campuses and lobbying for ethnic studies, an interdisciplinary field that focuses on race, ethnicity, difference in power and government and civilian life. So that way, her young people could be educated on systems of oppression. Kochiyama would continue her activism work throughout her life before dying in 2014 at the age of 93. Yuri Kochiyama throughout her life was a fighter for the oppressed and envisioned a world free of the imperialist and colonialist foundation that keeps so many at the bottom of society. However, I would be remiss not to discuss how Kochiyama's revolutionary politics led to her to work with or admire or defend figures who range from problematic to outright monsters. She greatly admired Mao Zedong and Ho Chi Minh for their revolutionary and communist politics in spite of the numerous human rights abuses and violations both men committed during their lifetime. She also infamously participated in the occupation of the Statue of Liberty to advocate for the release of four Puerto Rican nationals who were arrested for shooting at the U.S. House of Representatives that injured five congressmen to protest colonial status of Puerto Rico. Which, as a half-Puerto Rican woman, I'm also against the horrible treatment of Puerto Rico under the U.S., but I don't think I'm ever going to attempt to pull a suicide martyr stunt like those people did to ever express those opinions. This event follows a pattern in Kochiyama's work for advocating the release of political prisoners where some were unjustifiably arrested, whereas others were found with legitimate pipe bombs in their possession. Yet two things that will probably ruin her in a good amount of the eyes of the people who listen to this episode will be her support for Shining Path and her comments on Osama bin Laden. Shining Path was a Peruvian Maoist organization that is responsible for the deaths of thousands of people in Peru, something Kochiyama never really commented on fully in her lifetime, and the group is considered a terrorist organization and by many human rights groups. 
The extent of Kochiyama's support for Nahum involves visiting Peru and meeting with members of the organization. The Osama bin Laden quotes came after she saw the mistreatment of Muslims in the wake of 9-11, which was very similar to the way Japanese-Americans were treated after Pearl Harbor. Kochiyama, being both for racial solidarity and seeing the wars in the Middle East as another sign of U.S. imperialism, decided to use her time to defend Osama bin Laden as a freedom fighter against imperialism, despite the fact that he was a mass mur murderer and a virulent misogynist. She stated in an interview, you stated that some of the freedom fighters responded to Osama bin Laden's agenda that is more reactionary and does not speak to the needs of the masses of people who exist under U.S. dominance. Bin Laden had been primarily fighting U.S. dominance even when he received money from the U.S. when he was fighting in Afghanistan. He was fighting for Islam and all people who believe in Islam against Westerners, especially the U.S., even when he was fighting against the Russians. Oh, God, I'm so tired. Let's be clear. She did not defend 9-11 or anything crazy like that. But the defense of Osama bin Laden was horrible and really freaking dumb. To me, that's the biggest example of missing the forest for the trees in terms of political ideology. That one can be so steeped in their own viewpoints that they forget that not everyone on a part of their group is either a good faith actor or they can actively poison the fight you're trying to wage. One can still be an opponent for U.S. imperialism without aligning themselves with organizations or people that are actively harming those you claim to protect. Just like how one can admire someone for the racial, class, and anti-imperialism work they've done throughout their entire life that has genuinely helped make the lives of marginalized people better, while condemning past actions or comments and recognizing that they spent too much of their energy on people or organizations that are actively bad for society. If anything, that's part of the reason why I decided to do this episode on Yuri Kochiyama in the first place. Yuri Kochiyama actually never publicly identified as a feminist, even though she has worked a lot with Asian American women and other women of color throughout her lifetime, and her efforts have directly benefited women. However, from my research, it seems she fell under the myth that to be a feminist, you can only focus on women's rights, and she had a problem with many women's movement at the time, viewing them as either anti-man or only for white women. Though she did work with Third World's Women's Alliance and publicly supported groups such as Organization of Asian Women and Asian Women United. However, I think it's important for Asian American feminists to learn about her for multiple reasons. Yuri Tochiyama did incredible things throughout her lifetime that changed how Asian American women fought for equality and equity and broadened what circles they were allowed to operate in. Her influence cannot be divorced from her controversial views and actions, but that does, that does not mean one cancels out the other. I think it's always important to not just discuss but also learn about how controversial figures in history, because there is a reason they are considered historical figures. They're almost like flawed or even bad parents. 
you want to forget about the bad parts or maybe even erase them from your history. Yeah, right. But you cannot ignore how their actions, for good or ill, shape you as a person and those around you. If anything, the only way to get better as a person or a political movement is to understand why and how certain actions or beliefs took place, even if it means struggling under the weight of complexities and nuances that might lead to a total upheaval of how an individual or the community you're a part of, of operates. That doesn't even get into the fact that on that journey, there might be stuff there that was maybe previously used incorrectly or not to its fullest potential. Something one can maybe improve upon. That's how I feel about Kochiyama's views on solidarity and liberation. A movement can't just be for its own self-interest because none of us live in a vacuum where our problems are isolated from other people or the society we live in. Not to mention, how do we even define the we or group of a social movement when many members might be a part of other groups? As Diane Fujino, whose work I completely pillage for this episode, once said about Kochiyama, for Yuri, the struggles of Asian American women is linked with the struggle for international human rights. We must simultaneously oppose racism, sexism, capitalism, and imperialism. Which to me isn't just the fight for Yuri Kochiyama, but the fight for all of us. Asian American women's fight for equality and equity has been a long one because the scope of that fight involves so many different systems that often interlock with each other. Yet we are not the only ones who live within the systems and are oppressed under them. So rather than just focus on our own liberation, it is imperative to focus on the liberation of others as well. To borrow from Kochiyama, if we are to achieve a better world, we must begin by building bridges, not walls.